This is the Strength and Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. All right, Mr. Bain, here we are, episode 56. Take two. Take two, yes, we did uh, <laughs> spend about two hours recording this last week. Oh my God. And it was all fucked up. Yeah, it was. Long, long story short. So uh, let's hope that this one works out, Mr. Bain. Yep. Um, let's uh, tie up any loose ends from past episodes. Um, I do encourage everyone to check out Emma Jarman's work. Um, if you click through to her profile on Instagram, which we linked in our post mm-hmm. on the uh, interview from last week, um, in her bio, she's got a link tree with a bunch of actually things that she's written and worked on, including the actual survey that we referenced in our interview with her. But then some of those other articles, the uh, the outlaw article on uh, yes. OnlyFans that was <laughs> disallowed from Elite FTS. I actually read through that. That was actually you know it's really it, interesting. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, value judgments aside. Um, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not happening. It's just like yeah. with drugs. It doesn't mean it doesn't have value to some people. Right. So I, I thought I, I think her work is interesting. Um, she's certainly kind of tackling some, quote, taboo issues. But mm-hmm. sometimes those are things that are interesting to, to dive into, um, and, good, bad, or otherwise. And honestly, the way they become untaboo, or at least like you get more information about them, is if you do talk about it. If you just keep hiding them, then you never get more information. Definitely. Um, and, you know, we've gotten a lot of feedback on the PED episodes in mm-hmm. general. Yes. Um, I know you've had some others that have talked to you about uh, possibly, you know, maybe some more interviews surrounding that. Um, yeah. People like drugs. I, I, <laughs> that's true. what I'm finding. That, that's 100% true. Um, no, so so we, I've gotten some feedback as people would want to hear. I think a lot of folks that listen to us understand whether they are, whether they partake in PEDs, any type of, you know, TRT or or anything or even just being around the sport there is a lot of interest around it because again there is so much information as well as so much misinformation about PEDs so much uh I'm trying to think of the word here but rumors conjecture lore uh you know and so people people just want to understand like what what actually and so much of what we get is just you know bro sub- science bro science and subjective uh experience yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. And so. it's something that I at least find interesting. I'm not saying that that means I necessarily want to take drugs, but yeah. I think it's an interesting topic to talk about. Indeed. So uh, beyond that, Mr. Bain, what is going on? Well, I had this set uh, for the first recording, but uh, Lily had her first high school gymnastics meet. Uh, she's a freshman competing uh, for Maine West High School and the all-around. Uh, very unique uh, to be able to do that. Not a lot of freshmen get the chance to compete in the all-around uh, representing her school. So pretty cool. She took a spot from a senior uh, or, or a would-be senior uh, to compete there. And so she did okay at the meet. Uh, was not ideal. Not ideal circumstances. I will tell you, it, my view is the Illinois High School Sports Association is fucking up high school gymnastics as far as this season. I understand it's unique with COVID and all this other crap going on. <clears throat> so we saw the schedule showing Main West versus Vernon Hills. Like, okay, where's the meet at? It's a home meet. Awesome. Are there any away meets? Nope. So like, so we, so all four or five meets, whatever she's doing, are all going to be home meets. No, they're virtual meets. So there is a judge at Main West and Plains. In this case, there's a judge in Vernon Hills. The girls all warm up. They go through and they do the four different disciplines. 
and then somebody correlates the scores and we get a, a you know a spreadsheet later that night. I'm like, what? I guess it's better than nothing, but not that much better. Yeah, I mean, I was talking with one of my clients who's a high school teacher in Hinsdale South, and she said that uh, they are doing basketball mm-hmm. soon, but no no spectators, and so they're going to live stream it. So they're just going to have people do shoot-arounds like they were doing for gymnastics, or they're actually going to let them actually play? Well, they are. I mean, I, I don't think you do that. I mean, the, the two teams are actually going to play each other. There's just going to be no spectators in the arena other okay. than we, the we coaches. going to have an Illinois bubble, and all the, all the high school teams got to go there until yeah. they like, get knocked they're, out of the They're going to go on to Disney as well. <laughs> yes, yes. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Um, I, I guess at least we can look at it. At least they're getting back to some semblance of normal. Yeah. And, and for, for that, I am appreciative, but I would say that, and especially given that definitely the person who had the phone that they were using to stream on YouTube was not very well versed in how to actually film something. Yeah, um, but it, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, and yeah, <laughs> just get a tripod. That's all I got to do. Just get a fucking tripod. Yeah. You, you can buy one for your phone. I got it off Amazon for like 10, 15 bucks. And it's actually a I, a decent tripod for that purpose. I told Lily, I'm like, talk to her, her coach. I'm like, talk to her. I do not care. I will buy the tripod for the team. I will donate it to Maine West. Yeah, Please, geez. for the love of God, put a fucking phone on the tripod. Jeez. Anyway, I mean, it, it looked like, have you ever seen it? Since we're a day after the Super Bowl, if anybody watched that close-up video of the weekend on the Super Bowl halftime show, that's what it fucking looked like. Yikes. Very much so. Stone, what's going on you? Well, uh, AWPC Worlds has been set for October 1st through 3rd. Woohoo! So pretty excited about that. It will be here at 2XL. Um, it's still kind of challenging to get meets set up in alternative locations, and mm-hmm. I think we have a pretty good setup here at 2XL. Um, just like last year's combined WPC AWPC Worlds, we will have a meet hotel um, just on the road to Crown Plaza in Glen Ellen. It's actually literally less than a mile away. It's like a 20-minute walk, gasp walk, but you. Uh, we will have uh, some transportation running to and from there. We'll run WANs there so that for people that are staying, it'll at least be one less trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've got that all set, AVPC Worlds. Um, this weekend, I did attend the Ernie Franz funeral. Um, got to see a lot of, lot of old Franz lifters that I haven't seen in a while. Um, I saw... Noel Lavario, I saw uh, Isaac Lavario, I saw Tony Luna, mm-hmm. I saw uh, Bama Hibbing, um, I saw Sammy Greco. I just saw that. Who I didn't even recognize. He came up and gave me a hug. And, you know, with masks, it's kind of hard to tell who people are. Did he at least wear the white singlet so everybody recognized him? I, he said he wasn't done. And he said the white singlet was not retired yet. Oh, so boy. I did ask. Oh, boy. Um, let's see who else. I saw Ed Cohn there. Mm-hmm. I saw the Little Bridges there. Did you see Bar- Barzine there? Because I know he's. I, I definitely saw Barzine there. Yep. yep. I saw him and his wife, and we chatted briefly. Mm-hmm. Bob Kelly, who's one of our judges, he and I and Jackie and his son talked for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill Busby, who uh, works out of uh, 2XL here. Probably some others I'm forgetting, um, but a lot of old Franz lifters, um, which was nice to kind of catch up with people I hadn't seen in years. Mm-hmm. Um, saw his son, Ernie Jr. I don't. I didn't meet too many of his other uh kids mm-hmm. but i knew ernie jr he'd come to some of the meets in recent years yeah i've seen um, i've seen this up. so you know it was it was a short service it had the full color guard from the military um which was cool um i don't know that i've been to a funeral that had that they play taps um i think so um you it's the horn you know it. yes yes okay oh, god I, I, yeah that that teared me up a little bit i get i honest. I've gone through so many military funerals, either for my family or friends, and I can never get through taps. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was somber, but, uh, you know, a nice service. And mm-hmm. we will do something for Ernie um, 
something with the Illinois State Meet coming up this year. Mm -hmm. um, we've got the Ernie Franz Museum, which was already being set up prior to his passing. Mm -hmm. We will do some kind of dedication and something related to that coming up. So, awesome. Um, other than that, Mr. Bain, what is your fake news? <laughs> God, I love that one. Uh, startups, specifically tech startups. Uh, this does come from some of my work experience, especially fairly recently. Um, it's basically a Ponzi scheme. Uh, you have the early investors who are the only ones that are going to make real money in this. And, you know, VC money gets pumped in in the hopes What is VC for those that don't know? Venture capital. Got it. And 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 these are people that, that have this risk tolerance. So they know going in that there is a chance that this is not going to make it. Uh, but more often than not, the businesses themselves are not concerned with solving a problem. It's they're concerned with their next what they call raise or the raise in funding or the, or the next round. So if you ever hear somebody talk about, hey, it's a series A, a series B, a series C, that's their, you know, venture capital round of funding. And then you hear a seed round. That is where like somebody's giving you your initial big pump of, you know, financial capital, right? So, but then once they hit the IPO, initial public offering, everything hits the fan or as they're getting ready to, to go for the IPO and all of their books have to be exposed, Shit hits the fan. Great example of that a couple of years ago was the WeWork scandal and where they had to pull the IPO before it happened. They were basically uh, fudging the books, very Enron-esque when it came to making up fake you know, revenue and, and dollars and profits. And WeWork was basically like uh, they would go and buy commercial real estate yep. and have offices that like you and I, if we wanted an office for the yeah. Strike and Anger studio, we could go have like a very short-term – we, you know, we could flexible have, leasing. Yeah, like, hey, if every Tuesday at, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon until 4, this is the Strength and Anger Studios, and this is your guys' right. space. Put, clean your shit out when you're done, but you guys can use the space, and it's yours. Which kind of, maybe, especially pre-COVID, I'm sure post-COVID, I don't know how that's going to, people probably don't want to be near each other. I, I, I will tell you, like, Airbnbs are getting destroyed during COVID, and, and oh. it's, that's another one. Yeah, I mean, but pre, let's say pre-COVID, yeah. you know, hey, you know, I, I maybe I'm have a little, you know, self sole proprietorship type of company and I don't want to work from home, which is what everybody's doing now, but yeah. I don't want to work from home. I mean, I don't know about you, Mr. Bain, but like I, I probably, if I like, I would prefer to go to a place and work. I get why people like from working from, home. I don't like, you know, a long commute. I wouldn't enjoy that. If I had to drive an hour in traffic, I would certainly prefer staying at home to that. And if I had a mansion and I had a separate office, cool but there's something for me about like going to a different place and doing work and so i could see why something like we work might work but at the same time is it a good enough idea that it actually makes money given that you know there's a reason that generally you have to sign long-term leases with commercial real estate because Correct. otherwise you don't have that monthly annuity coming in exactly and yeah so it uh, other examples uber uh, and now many companies are not IPOing because of this kind of stuff. And so it, it is frustrating to me because I think technology is a really cool thing that can help enhance the human experience. But more often than not, what I see as I meet more and more tech entrepreneurs is you have really, really good people. And then you have other ones that all they're worried about is just raising VC money because what they do is they then get to reap the benefits of that because they are the initial idea bringers. And so, hey, cool, I raised my Series C and I raised $100 million. My cash out is $5 million and everybody else go fuck themselves, San Diego. So basically their customers are the venture capitalists, the, the people who give them money. The yes. customers aren't actually the consumers. Their, their goal Some, is yeah. to sell the idea to people who give them money yep. rather than 
creating a product or a service which meets the needs of the actual marketplace. Yes. So case in point, <clears throat> even though it may appear there is a service, Uber is a great example of this. So you've used Uber before. I have used it many times. And I like Uber. I do. I, I love Uber Eats. Uber Eats is great. But Uber has never turned a profit, ever. Yikes. You know how much they had in the bank when I left there in 2018? $24 billion. That is other people's fucking money. And that is why people could go and spend the money like we all did when we were traveling around pre-IPO. And so right. it is stuff like that that just, it blows my mind. And the more and more I'm around startup culture, the more jaded I become about it. But isn't this basically what happened with the dot-com bubble in, exact in the thing. late 90s? Like, the isn't exact this the exact thing. same thing? It is the exact same thing. Okay. Except it's on a higher scale because those guys may have $10,000 for the year in T&E, travel long expense. Some of these places, they have individuals that are doing one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand dollars a year in travel and expense. Yikes! Very much. That is. Listen, you fake news. You fake news. And depending on which side of the spectrum you're on, that's a very uh, ironic use of fake news. Uh, so, Stone, what's fake news? Fake news. Fake. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. I'll tell you what fake news is. Uh, banning peanut butter totally in schools. Please tell us more. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I literally ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day for lunch from like probably first grade through the end of high school. Part of that was laziness because my mom told me if you are willing to have the same thing every day mm -hmm. and that I can just basically just psh, psh, make a quick PB&J, I will make you lunch for as long as you'd like, as long as you live in this house. Done and done. So if if me not having to make my own lunch meant having the same thing every day, I can live with PB&J every day. Yeah. Fast forward to now, and you know it wasn't that long ago that I was in school, 20 years ago. Um, in my son's public school, like literally nuts were just completely banned because mm -hmm. of nut allergies. Now, in the private school, totally cool. They don't yeah. care. Catholic uh, Catholics apparently are good with- Just with nut everywhere. Butter. Wow. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm going to reference a 2008 Israeli study, uh, which was, quote, early consumption of peanuts in infancy is associated with a low prevalence of peanut allergy. And I look this up because it seems as though there are more nut allergies now than we were kids. And that mm -hmm. actually is true. Yes. And, 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 of course, nothing's, you know, settled science, quote, unquote. We're yeah. always searching for the truth. But, Just follow the science. But at least what the, what the postulation is based on that study and a couple other studies and based on the behavior of schools and parents is that a lack of exposure to the allergen of nuts and peanuts has led to more uh, cases of mm -hmm. nut allergy rather than less. And I Dumb. do get it that... You know, there are times when people have, a, even when they're exposed at a, a very young age mm -hmm. and a very low level of peanuts, that some kids just have it. Yeah. Like, that's always going to be the case. Yes. Um, but I think totally, uh, you know, keeping it away from kids is having the opposite effect. It is, because they can't develop the ability to fight any potential allergens. There. Right. Right. And it's, it, 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 we've talked about before, it's, it's the same kind of idea that we talked about with Fred Clary yes. in that interview is that if you totally live in a bubble, well, what happens when you go out of that bubble? Well, you're going to, you know, be exposed to 
pathogens and allergens you've never been exposed to before. It's like when they talked about the smallpox blankets that wiped out the Native Americans. I don't think that's exactly what happened. I think it was, yes, European settlers came over here and they carried diseases that the Native individuals had never been exposed to. So Mm -hmm. especially because, you know, the way in which disease was transferred was not fully understood at that time. Yes. That, yes, a large percentage of that population was just wiped out because they'd never been exposed to the same pathogens that, oh, I don't know, killed millions of people hundreds of years earlier in Europe. Imagine that. So banning peanut peanut butter, peanuts in schools is... Come on. You are fake news. Okay, you fake, you fake news. Very fake, very well. Well, Mr. Bain, let's move on to the hot topic. Oops. No, not the store in the mall, uh, but the hot topic of should openpowerlifting.org take an editorial stance on, quote, subpar lifts. So there's a new wrinkle in this. So this argument stemmed from a questionable, I'll say questionable, all-time world record squat at an RPS meet. RPS has a, I'll say, subpar reputation as a organization. There is some loose judging, as far as I have been told, and the standards are not, certainly not IPF slash USAPL, but I would say even by those who are a little more agnostic to that, they're pretty easygoing standards when it comes to squat depth, etc. It's interesting because I've heard some RPS meets the judging is very strict, mm-hmm. And then I've heard other meets where it's very loose. So I think maybe inconsistent would be... Uh, maybe and, a better term, a more accurate yeah, term. And I think that's true of a lot of some of these, you know, uh, lesser organized organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, the offshoots of the APF. And, and this has been true of the APF at times as well. Sure. I think we've cleaned it up in the last 10 years. Um, but I think, you know, in some of these organizations that are... are it's a very loose association between meets. Yes. I think inconsistency is something that is... Um, more prevalent. I, I, I would agree. Uh, so, so that's what kind of stemmed this argument uh, of having some type of committee or, you know, open powerlifting as the curator of all the records to determine if these should be actually allowed. So could open powerlifting do this? 100%. They could. They, they have the, the data. They could do these kind of things. Should they? In my view, not unless they want to change their mission. And the reason I say that is because they have basically stated that they are, they want to be agnostic and they want to, uh, basically be a data repository. Now, they have made some steps in a different direction with disallowing certain uh, meets because they were either not uh, affiliated with anybody or not sanctioned. Uh, and then I think there was another instance not too long ago where it wasn't even an unsanctioned meet. It was something else that caused them to disallow some some results. <clears throat> I do like the idea of legitimizing record, but what is the end goal? And honestly, this was raised fairly recently. Do all-time world records really matter? If you're idea that the IPF and the USAPL are the gold standard and they're the only thing out there, then what does the all-time world record list have to do anything to do with with you? It doesn't. Right. The IPF and, w- and USAPL records are what matter. Or the USPA records. Correct. And so if the end goal is just to say, I told you so, we'll get fucked. If somehow you were going to bring this to a professional sport, I mean, potentially I'm on board, but... That is going to take some type of consolidation, which the problem with that is cool. You get consolidated, and the reason why we have so many splinter organizations is because, as we've talked about many times, Eric, that guys don't want to be governed by one ruling body, so they go make their own fed. Egos. Yes, and and honestly, it's a free market, and you're able to do that because yeah. this is America. Yeah. Did you forget? This is America. 
Well, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this isn't without precedent. Um, we've talked about this before. In fact, I think it was in the episode with Jackie that in the Plusa throwback, we talked about the first IPA Nationals in which Anthony Clark set an all-time world record mm-hmm. at what should have been an all-time world record total and actually got an 1,100-pound squat passed. Mm-hmm. The 1,100-pound squat, he turned down later because the video showed the spotter or spotters were touching the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of the rules, the, the actual way the rule book was written in the IPA, it was written differently than every other organization. It was mm-hmm. essentially written, get the hip joint below the knee joint, not yes. the standard depth rule, which is get the top surface of the thigh where it meets the hip below the top of the knee. Because their rules were different, Powerlifting USA disallowed IPA lifts on the top 100 until they changed their rules. Yes. And some would argue that their depth standards were still, you know, maybe inconsistent or subpar. I don't. I wasn't around back in the 90s, late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, At least I don't powerlifting. You were alive. Yeah, sure. I, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was alive. I wasn't powerlifting. Um, but there was a time when they disallowed lifts on the top 100 list. Powerlifting Watch, which was kind of the precursor to open powerlifting, um, it was more of a blog with, you know, a, a records list. Mm-hmm. Um, they disallowed Sunlight Power meets, which were, were quote, sanctioned, but they weren't real sanctioned meets. I mean, right. it was – and I, we, I think we've talked about this before. Dr. Daryl Latch, a pretty good guy, nice guy from all, all uh, you know – By all accounts. By all accounts. And, you know, maybe was a decent entry point for some lifters that needed a less – you know, stringent meet, but essentially an organized gym meet. It was one judge, him, doing the scoring on the mic, calling the press command from the scorer's table. Cheapers. And so I think Powerlifting USA did count their lifts, but Powerlifting Watch took a stand that there was not a true Mm -hmm. sanctioned meet with three judges, and they also were disallowing most unsanctioned meets. And it was kind of controversial because there were, like, certain well-organized unsanctioned meets that they allowed, like uh, at the time, the the Raw Unity meet, which was unsanctioned, right. but was organized by one of the owners at the time of uh, Powerlifting Watch. So they did allow that. Right. So there are, there is some precedent, but what's, what's the reasoning we're not allowing this particular lift? Just because you didn't like the judges? I mean, by all accounts, RPS is an organization, although when uh, Gene Reichek started it, he said it is definitely not a federation, definitely not. We don't have membership fees. It's definitely not, not a federation. Not a fed. No fed. No federation. Not an organization. In fact, RPS was originally Rycheck Power Systems and somehow changed to Revolution Powerlifting Syndicate. Well, allow all feds in here, but he just took the entry fee and added $30 to it. Instead of having the membership fee once a year, it wasn't every meet. So some people have said. Um, Whatever. But, <laughs> but, I mean, what's the reason for not allowing this particular lift? Because uh, a cell phone video, it didn't look good? Eh, I don't know that that's a good enough reason. And if it, we talked about the same issue when we talked about Michael Soong a year ago. Yep. These are the same arguments that came up when he did his all-time world record list is that, oh, should that one be allowed? Well, it, and it I, got passed. And we, we, give a, we give a lot of credit to Michael Soong. I think he did a great service to the sport. He did a ton of record keeping that nobody else was ever going to do, mm-hmm. especially prior to you know some of the database technology that's that open powerlifting is using now, and not to mention multiple volunteers yes. working on global it. Global volunteers. Yeah, yeah, not just one person, Michael Soong. Yeah. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, what did it mean to set an all-time world record? It's basically just a list a guy kept. You're, you're on the top of the spreadsheet. Right. I mean, literally, he had sent me this. It's literally a spreadsheet that Michael Soon came up with. And that's the same thing that open powerlifting is. Yeah. That's not to denigrate it. I think it's a cool website. It's a cool service. Yeah. But when you say I set an all-time world record, that basically means you're at the top of that database. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, if you want something to have legitimacy... That's what an organization, that's what a, a sanctioning body is for. And we have a million sanctions, and that's not going to change. And why would a website be able to change that? Yeah. It, so, it, 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 you know, it, it's an end goal that's impossible. If you want legitimate world records, then set them in a legitimate organization. Set a, you know, uh, whatever the world body is for the USPA, or set an IPF world record, yeah, set a WPC I, world record, IPL, set an IPA yeah. world, IPL world record. Yeah. Um, or, you know, world powerlifting, which is a, the new offshoot from IPF yeah. with, uh, with, Wil I believe the guy who created the Wilkes coefficient, uh, um, was the head of that? I'll, I'll, we'll have to look at, uh, do a, a alphabet soup 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Get, we'll get we'll have to look stuff. back at that because there have been some new ones since that episode. Yeah. So, but, so to, to add to this, the, the new wrinkle over this past weekend, uh, there was an attempt with it, what appeared to be a slanger shirt. Uh, by Mike Womack of an 11-10 pound or 11-11 pound bench. This thing was dog shit. Well, and not only that, but I, I did a little digging on it and I messaged with one of the guys that kind of know the situation. We, yeah, we, we were both on the same thread for a little bit. Um, apparently it was the, quote, USA, USA Bench Press Association, which Mike Womack himself started. And so owns <laughs> So it's his own sanctioning body and he's lifting in his own meat. And there's judges in, like, shorts and a sweatshirt. Yeah. And there's six or seven spotters around the bench. And, it, I, you know, I'm not big on judging lifts from a video, but it looks, no. it looks suspect. And I said it's basically not sanctioned. So I don't right. know that it will be allowed by open powerlifting because it's, it's basically an unsanctioned meet. I mean, you basically you're putting on a meet under your own sanctioning body, quote, unquote, mm -hmm. presumably in his own gym yep. with his own spotters with his own judges. Well, so it did work for Thor, so. It's at least suspect. Yeah, so so my take on it was, and I'll just read right what I put on on the Multiply Powerlifting group. Womack's lift did dip. You see it at the top of the movement, it does dip. You can't hear the audio on the video that was that was posted, so it can't tell. I can't tell when the rack man came in. It looked, looked pretty suspect to see how the spotters took that one versus, uh, I believe it was Will Barati. Uh, in my view, and I will say this with a little bit of expertise as a spotter, uh, the optics looked more like that was a save versus an actual rack. Here, here's the thing, though. Someone's going to come along and beat it. It, it. That's Whether it's this year, whether it's for five weeks, ten weeks, two months, ten years, someone is going to, and this lift will become a moot point. This reminded me very much as I was watching it of, and I don't remember, maybe you do, if it was Julius Maddox or Thomas Davis at Boss of Bosses a couple years ago. Very similar. Hit like an all-time raw bench press record, but at the rack command, looked like he wobbled or, you know, basic spotters had to take it at the top. So, again, I, I don't know, Eric, if you remember that uh, from a couple of years ago, but this is almost identical to it. And, again, same thing. The record has now been beaten, and no one cares. No one fucking talks about it. And so it comes back to, do all-time world records really matter? Until people are actually making a living in the sport? No. You're at the top of a spreadsheet. Congratulations. If you want to go to, you know, one A on, on the spreadsheet, I'll send you an Excel. You can do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree. So that's, uh, that's, that's my take on the hot topic.
Well, let's, let's move on, Mr. Bain. Oh, let's move on because we need to talk about some stone stories. This is because I actually was here for this one. Oh, yes. This is. So this I is cannot a, wait. This is a more recent one. Um, so this is post moving into the new 2XL, I think pre-COVID. I, so I, I want to say it's almost a year ago at this point. Yeah, it probably was. It was shortly after we moved into this new space. Um, so a dude randomly comes in for a tour. And even back then, pre-COVID, it was usually that we wanted people making an appointment. Like if they said, hey, can I come in for a tour? I mean, I- I'm often with clients. We don't have a front desk attendant because that's just not our business model. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this guy comes in early in the afternoon and I was turning my client, Jill. She's, you know, been a client for five, six years now mm-hmm. and she pretty much knows what she's doing. So she said, yeah, go ahead and, and talk with this guy. You know, he's a shorter Asian man, um, shorter than me, maybe 150 pounds soaking wet. Mm-hmm. And I take him around and he asked me if we have strongman equipment. Um, and I said, yeah. And I show him the stuff we had. I don't know if we even know if we had a yoke at that point. Maybe we did. Cause I think, no, I think we, we did. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. did. Um, we had a yoke farmer's handles. We have, you know, present tense mm-hmm. yoke, farmer's handles, sleds, a couple big tires. So, I mean, I, we're not a strongman gym, but we have some strongman equipment, but he was told, right. And he was told that we had Atlas stones and I'm like, uh, well, no, we don't have those. But I was told. Uh, yeah, I was told you do. Again, this guy's five foot four, <laughs> maybe 150 pounds. We got a 50 pound med ball that's probably heavy enough for you. Pretty much. Um, and then he just stood there staring at me, and I said, "Well, if if you'd like to keep looking around, you know, have at it." Tear it I, up because I had to get back to my client. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see this, but one of our members, uh, Javi, saw him going around and literally like. Like knocking on the weights, fake weights, very like, wrong. Like very seeing fake. and seeing if they were like legit or fake weights. I didn't see this, but Javi told me about it later. Brad Castleberry doesn't train here; they're real fucking weights. Yeah, you know what's funny is I remember back to one of his original emails. He wanted to know if our weights were accurate and if they were consistent. And I was like, "Well, this is probably the place for you because I probably keep the weights." As organized as any facility possibly could. Until it's me and they're fucking everywhere. Yeah, I moved them all back, though. Yeah. So same guy then emails Howard and I, because I did tell him, if you want to come again, you need to set an appointment. So Mm -hmm. he emails both Howard and I about a day pass. And uh, he emails both of us, and he asks both of us if he can get a free week pass. Was this this together or separately? Separately emailed Howard and I and asked the same question. We both give the same answer, by the way. No, wrong. Uh, and then he finally does set an appointment. He ends up coming two hours early <laughs> from what he said, because I think I had, as usual, probably a four and a five o'clock client. Mm-hmm. So I told him he could come at six. Uh, he just showed up at four, four thirty. Okay. No problem. I'm with a client, so I have him fill out paperwork. And he once again asks about a free week pass. No. I said, no, we don't do free week passes. And I asked him. And then? I asked him. I said, have you been here before? He's like, no, 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 no. I've never been here before. <laughs> and I'm like, I look at him. And then I look at Javi, uh, who was there the first time he was there. And Javi just nods his head like, yes. And I was like, is that the same guy who knocked on the weights? And Javi says, nods his head. I, yes. I was in the gym at this point. I was actually over on the turf stretching out and everything. And Javi comes over and starts telling me all this, that what was going on while this guy is doing what you're yes. about to talk about. Yes. And then he goes in one of the power racks. <laughs> Um, and proceeds to do some quarter squats. And I'm being generous when I say quarter squats, like not even like barely knees at 90 degrees. 
Wow. When I'm done with my client, because Jill, usually, I mean, sometimes we might finish up in 50 or 55 minutes as mm-hmm. opposed to 60. She sometimes gets there early, does her warm-up on her own. And so I said, hey, you know, I got a couple minutes before my next client Can we take care of payment. Oh, can I finish my workout first? Sure, asshole. Yeah, like, okay, dickhead, you're the one that came two hours before you wanted to has asked three to four times about a free week pass. So, yeah, sure, no problem. Whenever you're ready to pay, player. Um, (laughs) And he was proceeds to never be seen or heard of again. Uh, In fact, I think you were even kind of watching him a little closely because it looked like even with his quarter squats, he looked like he was going to fail. He was struggling, so I was like... The spidey sense was tingling, or the the spotter sense was tingling. Sure, sure. I should say. So, yeah, it was uh, was no bueno. So, quite the interesting uh, occurrence here in the gym. Um, let's go ahead and move on to our Plusa throwback. Throwback, throwback, throwback. So, Mr. Bain, we're going to look back at the issue from November 1985. Wayback machine. So, uh, again, this is pretty early even for you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's see what was actually going on in the world in November 1985. Well, there was a summit in Geneva between then-President Ronald Reagan and the Soviet General Secretary... Uh, say that for me again. Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev, who mm-hmm. I think would later become the president, basically, or head of state yes. of the Soviet Union. Um, and that would kind of begin the process towards, you know, tearing the wall down. Yeah. And, and the Mr. Dismant- Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And, you know, kind of the dismantling of eventually the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard Stern would begin broadcasting in New York. Wow. Uh, uh, Microsoft Windows 1.0 was released. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of Bill Gates, but certainly a significant uh, occurrence <laughs> there. The 1985 top movies were as follows. Back to the Future, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Rambo 2, Beverly Hills Cop, excellent movie. And Rocky 4, which was, I believe, the one where he faced the uh, Soviet boxer. Drago. Right, right. I like that one. I, that gets it, a bad rap. I like that one. It's a great flick, man. I know. It really gets a lot of hate, though. I mean, it, spawned, it spawned the sequels, Creed, Creed and Creed 2. Which also get a lot of hate. Yeah, I don't understand why. Also, very fun, um, our former commander-in-chief, do you know when his first debut on a national TV show was? I do not know. November 17th, 1985. Wow. Yes, he was on wow. 60 Minutes. I see. Yeah. Uh, that <laughs> Speaking is, of. His slowly rise to power, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, the 1985 top TV shows, The Cosby Show, mm-hmm. canceled, <laughs> Family, t- and I love The Cosby Show. It was one of my favorite shows growing up. Just the fact that he was a weirdo, neither here nor there. Yeah, it was still a good show. Yeah. Family Ties, um, I was a big fan of uh, Michael P. Keaton, mm-hmm. uh, played by the same, uh, why can't I think of his name, uh, that played Marty McFly in Back to oh, the Future. Oh, uh, Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, yes. Oh, the guy who made Timor's phone, yeah. I wonder if Timo will listen to this episode. He will. He's, he knows I make that joke all the time. Ah, uh, good. Uh, Murder, She Wrote. Great show. And 60 Minutes. Yeah. And that's why it was so popular, because Donald Trump was on there. <laughs> uh, Mr. Bain, what was going on in the Bain household or with you in November 1985? Well, I would have been three. Uh, I believe my dad was uh, either just finishing or was about to finish commuting back and forth uh, between... DC and Dallas. He was working there. Uh, you know, I, I talked about in our first recording. Dad actually was part of the group that kind of built uh, the structure, the infrastructure for the first cell phone uh, network. 
and the the BNet network. And so dad dad worked on that when he was uh, with MCI, and then eventually uh, WorldCom, Verizon, and all the other iterations that it's been. But uh, yeah, I, I was three, uh, living it up with uh, with Carol at, at my house, and uh, you know, dad was commuting and coming home, and you know, doing parent things. So uh, not a lot going on there. So uh, Stone, what were you doing? Um, I was two, and uh, apparently I was an early talker. And at two, I was already like I just went from talking to like apparently talking in full sentences. <laughs> so ba- like babble and in, in, in full sentences. I mean, apparently just talking in full sentences. <laughs> and my grandparents, my my dad's parents, loved taking my brother Ken because he mm-hmm. would just sit in the back seat and be quiet, versus I would just literally talk nonstop and ask tons of questions about everything. Makes sense. So. Um, on the cover of this November 1985 issue is the man, Dr. Squat Fred mm-hmm. Hatfield. Um, he was most famously known for his 1014 squat, which was his uh, probably his best lift. Um, he did that at the 1987 Record Breakers mm-hmm. at 45 years old. Impressive. It was not the first, but it was definitely one of the first 1,000-pound squats. Mm-hmm. Um he had not done that at the time of this issue, uh, but uh, his best lifts overall <coughs> in competition were 1,014 squat, a 523 bench, and a 766 deadlift. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up winning two IPF world titles, one in 1984 and one just after this issue in 1986. Um, in 1988, he bombed at USPF Seniors, and he never competed again. And he competed for many years. From, Very interesting. I would love to understand what happened there. Yeah, like, and he competed from you know the the, the mid seventies up through that nineteen eighty eight, and then after that, done. Not even an, another small meet. Just cold turkey. Um, he died in twenty seventeen. Uh, he apparently had cancer, mm-hmm. um, and he was known as Doctor Squat because he did have a PhD in sports psychology, mm-hmm. um, and his website DoctorSquat.com is actually kind of what got me into lifting. I found his website. I read all the articles. Um, it got me, you know, interested in lifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was lifting in football, and I just wanted to know more about it. The message board was how I found out about Franz Gym. I, I made a message board post and said, hey, I'm interested in learning more about powerlifting. I'm in Aurora, Illinois. And somebody said, oh, I think Ernie Franz and the <laughs> APF are based out of Aurora, Illinois. And I'm sure someone had a chuckle when they saw that. I go, wait, you're in Aurora? Are you fucking yeah. kidding? <laughs> Um, and the article in this Power from USA was on the safety squat bar, which they called the, quote, magic leg machine. It's not a machine. It's not mechanized. Uh, yeah, I, well, that's what they called it. <laughs> um, Fred Hatfield talks about that the actual inventor was Jesse Hogland, okay. a name I'm not familiar with. But Fred Hatfield was definitely the person who popularized it back in the 80s, and mm-hmm. he sold it um, as well. Um, and... I would say, though, Westside probably takes credit for really popularizing it in the modern era. Yeah, they, they brought it to the forefront with, you know, all the different variations they do with that silly thing. Um, and there is a picture in this Powerlifting USA of uh, Hatfield, Dr. Squat, holding the racks. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I'm not saying that they are bad, but I don't remember him ever calling the hands in front holding onto the rack with the safety squat bar, quote, Hatfield squats. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that was something maybe Josh Bryant popularized, and he was buddies with Fred Hatfield, so it's possible that that's something that he got from him. But I remember Dr. Squat talking about, you know, merely having the hands out in front, holding the handles more for balance or to give yourself a self-spot if you were training by yourself. 
Um, I don't remember him advocating the way that they are done now. Again, that's not to say that's bad. That's just not the way I remember Dr. Squat talking about them when I would, you know, frequent his message board. Right. Um, there was an advertisement for the MSSA, First Annual Winter Nationals. And being run by Rich Peters, who uh, was and is the president of NASA. Mm-hmm. and no, Not the National Aeronautics and Space Association. No, the Natural Athlete Strength Association. Um, go back to our Alphabet Super Powerlifting episode. Yep. Um, and, and I did email Rich Peters and asked him, you know, what was this MSSA? And he said this was the Mid-South Strength Association, which okay. he said was the precursor to the NASA concept. Gotcha. Um, I did email him. You know, I would say when I've emailed Rich Peters for questions like this, he's usually given me, you know, a, a, a response, not mm-hmm. like a long response, but, you know, kind of just a, a quick response, um, sure. polite. Um, I did ask one follow-up question, and I did not get a response. So, <laughs> you know, I asked, you know, I, I, I think I know the answer is that he left – he was previously USPF meet director, mm-hmm. and I believe he left because of drug testing. Mm-hmm. I'm a little curious why he just didn't go with the ADFPA. I mean, I guess he wanted to do his own thing, um, which he did and still so, does. So wait, he didn't like a rule, so he made it up his own fed? Basically. Oh, weird. Um, there was an advertisement for the Inzer Power Shirts, and nice. Ted Archidi was in the picture. Supposedly, he regretted later that he didn't do his 7-Eleven bench raw even mm-hmm. though i mean he said it was an early shirt that didn't get that much i mean that's what everybody says about gear oh, i didn't get that much out of it yeah, sure 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 um no there was an advertisement for ernie franz's 10 commandments of powerlifting book mm-hmm. plus a poster apparently came with it wow I, I wish i had this poster of ernie deadlifting yeah um like, that, and, and i think morosier may have this up yeah the, up at the gym yeah uh i bought uh when i went to Franz gym i asked ernie about buying this book and it was out of print and mm-hmm. you could Go back and listen to our episode with Howard Pendros where he talks about republishing the book. Um, Ernie didn't have any copies of the book when I went to Franz Gym as a high schooler, and I had to order it from Ricky Del Crane, mm-hmm. and I did not get the poster. Gotcha. Um, there was uh, some comments on the formation of the APF, and, you know, an apt subject to talk about since that is our topic at hand of the day mm-hmm. is uh, the American Powerlifting Federation. But as a reminder... Um, at around this time frame, just to give some context, uh, September 1984 was the first world competition with South Africans. It was around 82 that the AMPF, mm-hmm. the American Masters Powerlifting Federation, was formed. You can go back and listen to our, uh, our episode on the Franz versus USPF IPF lawsuit. Um, but around this time frame... Um, I, I believe earlier in this year, Maris Sternberg and Felicia Johnson had competed and won at USPF Seniors. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was the year prior. Uh, no, if it was September 84, it must have been that same. It must have been that next year that they competed and were banned from competing at IPF Worlds. Um, in July 85, probably after that Seniors, um, Franz Sternberg... Uh, Johnson was on at the beginning. She later dropped out. Mm-hmm. Sued the USPF in July 1985. So just prior to this issue. Right. Um, and we go into deep detail on this on the episode. Yeah, there's a lot more details. Pull the court documents, all that fun stuff. Yes. Um, it's great. There's big money, U.S. Marshals. It's really fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was a Ken Lester column, which reaffirms that the NPA was the first splinter organization um, and said, you know, powerlifting is 
it's tried to stay together, but it's, you know, it's always been kind of splintered. There was the MPA and there was mm-hmm. the ADFPA, which has become the USAPL. Um, he does talk about equipment approvals, mm-hmm. and the APF could be successful if they, quote, make lifting less complicated for the average lifter. And he talked about even at that time how the USPF and IPF had equipment approval fees mm-hmm. and how, you know, why should your local lifter, which probably will never even compete at nationals, have to wear, quote, approved gear? I mean, it, it made sense then. It makes sense now. And I'm, I guarantee the fees were way less back then. Yeah, $249,000. Wow. Um, <laughs> good money if you can get it. Yeah, why not? There was a letter from Dr. Conrad Cotter, who mm-hmm. we talked about in that Franz versus USPF lawsuit. Um, in fact, he personally uh, won a judgment in that lawsuit mm-hmm. and then asked for too much money and then got none of the money. It, it, it's pretty interesting. You'd have to go back and listen to the full episode to get the context. But mm-hmm. um, he comments on the recent seniors and uh, said, you know, judges are often neglected and they only get negative feedback. Um, but did apologize oh, for – he did apologize. Uh, one lifter apparently, you know, he thought that he got red lights because he was wearing a, supposedly an illegal erector shirt. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with what a, an erector shirt is, it's essentially a, a tight polyester shirt that supposedly helps keep you more upright. Um, I've never – I, I have worn one. I didn't get Erect. much – Yeah, I didn't get much out of it. Um, and apparently it was stamped legal, mm-hmm. but in the IPF, you're not allowed sleeveless erector shirts. Mm. And he apparently had pulled the sleeves up, um, and he thought that's why he got a red light. So he took it off and then got red lights again, and they said, oh, we red lighted you last time because of depth. And so that was some controversy around that. Gotcha. There was another lifter who did some kind of hula dance after his last deadlift and, quote, was, was reprimanded um, for doing a dance after his lift. Versus another lifter did some kind of similar, not a hula dance, but some kind of similar celebration, Mm -hmm. and nobody said anything. Well, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need approval from some khaki-clad goon squad. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Um, So I don't see why they would need either. Of course. (laughs) It seems as though this seniors kind of caused the AMPF to go into overdrive more as the APF. And again, the AMPF was the American Masters Powerlifting Federation. Mm-hmm. Now, was it supposed to be geared more towards those who were over 40, or is it just... Originally, it was. Yes. Originally, it was because Ernie had some issues with the way he ran the IPF Masters Worlds. Gotcha. And he separated the age categories into five-year increments, and the yes. IPF yes. wanted it only in 10-year increments. And apparently, they disallowed all the world records that lifters had set of that meet. That's when he formed the AMPF, and I think it was a drug testing issue as well. Yeah. Um, and that's that's always been an issue with the APF. He, Ernie didn't feel they should be drug testing and felt, well, especially for master's lifters that, you know, again, their testosterone probably is lower when you get over 40. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seemed like after the seniors that the APF became more of a direct competitor to the USPF and not just like a, an adjunct organization more right. designed for master's. Um, Larry Pacifico, who... I believe was integral in the starting of the APF, um, commented on it. Um, he said that they would honor all older records and maybe even continue to honor records from other organizations, almost kind of like an all-time world record list at so, the time. So open powerlifting of them. Um, the first WPC Worlds was to be held 1986 in Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, held by Gus Rethwich of uh, the Hawaii Record Breakers fame. And it, he talked about that the first... Uh, 
he didn't say the first, but he said at the 1986 APF Seniors, the squat and bench will be conducted with the round system, which is what we still use in powerlifting, mm-hmm. and that the deadlift would be run in, quote, the standard way. So the, the Olympic lifting way, correct? Which is basically a session model where you the bar weight never goes down. So once you load a weight on the bar, it, it never goes down. So you, it's possible that you could follow yourself. Mm-hmm. If, let's say, you open with 500 and go to 525 and then you go 540, if there's no one with weights between there, you could literally follow yourself, which is why we got rid of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But they said that might inject some more excitement into, you know, the scoring. Mm -hmm. Um, Gus Rethwich um, said that Hawaii would be fully APF, um, and he had previously been the USPF Hawaii Record Breakers Meet Director. Um, He said he was totally against drug testing and said – Unless you can drug test everyone, mm-hmm. then there's no point in drug testing. He gave the example of, well, what if you drug test the first and second place winners and they test positive, mm-hmm. and then the third place winner becomes the first place winner, but you didn't drug test them. So I, I get his point. Um, you know, I think that's why generally you do it randomly at a, a percentage because yeah. it is cost prohibitive otherwise. Yes, it is. Uh, he would later go on to form Wobble, the World Association of Bench Pressers and Deadlifters. More on that in our alphabet soup. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> APF rule changes. So they did talk a little bit about this. Um, they did say that they would not ban lifters or officials for, quote, outside behavior. And I think this was in direct response to Maris, Sternberg, and Felicia Johnson being banned, mm-hmm. um, you know, for lifting in a, you know, another federation meet, which featured South Africans, which South Africa was still... In the middle of apartheid. Partici- yeah, still participating in apartheid. Um, and said the APF would be a lifting organization only. Okay. Um, the apparel on lifters would not ban, and then the APF would not ban persons, names, clubs, or insignias, which apparently the USPF and IPF did. And still do. Uh, correct. You have to have approved logos. But I, I want to know, like, do they ever hound Nike or Reebok or Adidas for money? You know, that that's an... That's an Excellent point. Like, what if I came with a with a Nike branded T shirt? Is that okay? Well, I think the T shirts are by like the shoes. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, how why is that okay? Yeah, that's again. I, I don't know. I I would actually love some feedback on that. Yeah. Do you ha- do, do shoes have to pay? Because belts do. Correct. I believe so. Yeah. What if Nike came out with a belt? Would they allow that in the IPF? Or would they know. they go to Nike and say? You got to pay us two hundred fifty thousand dollars to have your belt used in the IPF. To which Nike goes. So, Get okay, fucked. now this is total rumor and yondo. Yeah. Supposedly, I, I've heard this before that Reebok came to the IPF years ago and wanted to feature a belt that was like their pump shoe, that would have some kind of like. Pump it in, up in inflation system. Inflation system in the belt. They came to the IPF and said they'd be willing to pump money into it mm-hmm. if it would be approved. And the IPF told them to get bent. Hmm. Interesting. So that, that's a rumor and innuendo that I've heard that they wanted to get into powerlifting, and they wanted no part of that. It's so. very. I I feel that may t- need some uh, some additional research. I, I want to know like, cause I, 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 yeah, I remember when they banned like logos on shirts. I'm like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that. Because we, we know some folks that do lift in the USAPL, and they had a very specific type of attire they would always wear, and they had to stop doing it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Where does that end? Can I not wear Nike socks? Yeah. Um, can I not wear Nike shoes? 
you know, again, so I don't know. I don't know all the intricacies of how those rules go. Yeah, I have to figure that out. Um, there would be in the APF WPC, there would be no rankings of, of referees and no jury. And if you're not familiar, in the IPF and I believe USAPL, in addition to the three referees sitting around the platform, mm-hmm. there's an additional three referees sitting at a table that is the, quote, jury with unanimous, as I understand it, with a unanimous decision, they can overturn the decision of the referees if there is a uh, like a request of somebody, of a coach or a lifter. Mm-hmm. Um, that would not be and is not um, the case in the WPC APF. There were some examples of rule changes offered up by APF slash AMPF members. Things like, should we allow elbow wraps in the bench press? We do not, and I don't think that would be a good idea. (laughs) Should movement of the hands in the squat be uh, a a disqualification, which I believe still is. Mm -hmm. um, But I could see where maybe like a slight movement of the hand, you know, should that be cause for a DQ? Should suits be single ply only? No. No. (laughs) Single ply is in fact. Bullshit. (laughs) Should fourth attempts count towards the total? No. They do not. Should referees be certified by a written exam only? Which they were for a while in the APF, Mm -hmm. and it was only when then they decided to have, you know, the APF WPC now has two levels of referees. It's basically national and world, and Mm -hmm. you do have to take it. Now you have to take a practical with the national, which I think is a good good. A good way of doing it. I wholeheartedly support that. Um, but at that time, when they had WPC referees, you did have to do a, a much harder written test and a practical. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that comes from in the IPF. In addition, I, th- I believe there's state level, there's national level, and then there's IPF world. And within IPF world, there's category one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Um, going cat so there, five. yeah, there are various levels of referees in the IPF. Um, moving on to the top 100, 181. You got to justify all those fees for everybody, you know. <laughs> hey, well, they, apparently, they don't even necessarily always pay the referees, from what I've been told. They don't um, pay the spotters, I'll tell you that much. Um, I believe, well, at least it, when they were running USAPL Raw Nationals, um, the coordinator of staff came over to 2XL and did say that they would pay $50 per session for, uh, for spotters loaders. Well, they, they don't want our type of spot, I'll tell you that much. But at 2018, Ron Arnats in Spokane, there were spotters that traveled there. I remember there was a big blow-up that happened right afterwards. Spotters that traveled there on their own dime were told they'd be reimbursed and given meals. They were all given one sandwich a day and were never reimbursed for their travel. Yikes. Yeah, big well, yikes. Yeah, I can tell you that at Raw Nationals, when it was in Lombard in 2019, they were. I was told and I was asked if we had anybody that wanted a spot, and they said they would pay $50 a session, which probably works out to $100 a day. Uh, yeah, if you, if you do. Because you usually have two sessions a day, not cutting the primetime session. Yeah, So. Dumb. But I was told by referees that came there and worked out at 2XL that they were not paid, I believe. Again, rumor and innuendo, that I, I believe that's what I was told. I think you should at least give your – your workers, they're not doing it for their job. Let's no, be fair. No. Um, they should get some kind of stipend for their time, though. So, Agreed. anyways, a topic for another time. <laughs> um, the top 100, 181, 82.5 kilolifters from <laughs> September 84 to August 1985. Rick Gangler mm-hmm. is top of the list with a 760 squat. Big squat. One Ed Cohn is number two. Yes, mm-hmm. he competed at 181. He has a 722 squat. I'm trying to look if any other lifters that I know at this time. No one that comes right out. Um, and then in the bench, Rick Wheel was number one with a 534 bench. 
Uh, we've got, oh, Ed Cohen is down there at 440. Mm-hmm. He's at about 16. Um, Ed Cohen has topped the deadlift, however, with a 766 deadlift, tied nice. with Rick Gangler um, with a 766 deadlift. And the total, it is Rick Gangler with a 2,000-pound total at 181 and mostly single-ply gear, mm-hmm. um, probably single-ply suit and maybe not even a bench shirt. Uh, Ed Cohen, number two, with 1929. And that he set that in uh, – most of these lifts were done in 84. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, a couple of five. So that's your that's your top one hundred, going all the way back, way back in the way back machine. Um, we had a literal advertisement in this powerlifting USA for steroids, three <laughs> natural safe steroid formulas. Sure, 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 sure. And this was from Bicker Lab, California. I would love to know if those were actual steroids, if it was just you know, powder in a can. Um, it, it seems odd they would be selling. It was probably creatine. Literally steroids. Um, there was results from the Illinois Police Championships, which was in St. Charles, Illinois, on uh, August 15th, 1985. Mm-hmm. Our buddy Dick Zenzen was the best lifter in the heavyweights. Nice. Totaling 1610 at 220. He did a 650 squat, a 400 bench, and a 560 deadlift. Um, he is a retired police officer now mm-hmm. and ran the Illinois State Meet as a longtime APF lifter and referee. Still sits on the APF executive board, actually. Um, and it's interesting, the meet director, whom I was not familiar with, but he did mention that Ernie and Diane Franz were there. Dennis and Sandy Brady were there, mm-hmm. who um, Dennis Brady is the owner of B&W Gym and longtime US, USAPL meet director. Um, Mayor Sternberg was apparently there as well. So, you know, kind of everybody from across the board was helping with this meet. Nice. And there was an advertisement for the Super Shirt by France. And it was advertised as being in polyester or denim cotton, quote unquote. Hmm. So interesting that, you know, this shows at least at this point, Ernie was probably the first person with that denim bench shirt. Now, there was, you know, two different bench shirts being advertised, mm-hmm. you know, Franz and Enzer, but... Uh, even back in the fall of 85, they were both advertising their bench shirts. Nice. All right, well, on to our topic at hand of the day, Mr. Bain. Yeah, let's talk about this. And I think this is a, a good topic to talk about, especially since we have had the, uh, you know, not necessarily untimely, but the sad passing mm-hmm. of its founder, Ernie Franz. And you and I have wanted to, you know, curate some content related to Ernie Franz. Um, we're going to do some interviews We've uh, we've done some other episodes on Ernie Franz. Um, there, there's a legacy there, and I think you and I both, when we started this, maybe not explicitly, but both wanted to kind of carry that on. I know er, the work Ernie did, you know, decades ago, contributed to the lifting experience that I get to have today, and I and I want to, you know, I want to honor that, and I know for sure you do. Definitely. Um, so, you know, the question that we've, we've asked a couple of times is why, and this is mm-hmm. one of our why episodes, and why APF? Mm-hmm. Because I, I have been a fairly loyal soldier and lifter and meet director for the APF for many years. I mean, I have lifted other organizations. I've judged other organizations. Um, and I have mostly stayed with the APF um, for, I would say, four major reasons, and I'm going to mm-hmm. go through those. The first one is the history and the records of the APF. Right. Um, you know, it is a long history as an organization. It's, you know, arguably the second or third oldest powerlifting organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was founded by Ernie Franz, my coach and my mentor. And 
that means something to me, the fact that he started the organization. It was formed out of a place of honesty, I believe, for lifters. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this in our, our history of drug testing episode, that even those that were heavily in favor of drug testing, I believe it was Judy Gedney who said that, you know, at least Ernie Franz and the APF are being honest right. about the fact that they aren't drug testing and they're not having the facade like at the time the USPF was having where, yes, we quote unquote drug test. Mm -hmm. When you break a record thus, since the APF has its, you know, history going all the way back to 1982. Um, in fact, in Illinois, they, they transferred the USPF record book, whether that's right or wrong. I, I you know, neither here nor there, but it, it's there. Um, the records were transferred over. And thus, if you break a record in the APF and WPC, that actually means something. You know, right. we talked about all quote unquote, all time world records. When you break an APF equipped national record, when you break a WPC equipped world record, mm -hmm. That means a lot. Like, that's a big deal. Right. Especially in the open class. Uh, agreed. Um, even in Illinois, if you break an APF Illinois state equipped record, which, again, has its, you know, roots all the way back to the late 70s, mm -hmm. um, that means something. Um, there's weight. There's no pun intended. There's weight to it. You know, back in, uh, I think it was 2006, um, I broke a, a deadlift record in the 165s that was at the time held by Ed Cohn in the, in the 165s. Now that you beat the goat. That certainly doesn't mean I'm stronger than or a better lifter than Ed Cohn, but it was a record he happened to break when he probably stopped along the way in the 165s mm -hmm. on his way up to eventually 242. Yeah, he um, competed at 275 a couple of times too, didn't he? Yeah, I don't think he was ever a full 275. No, um, no he, was, he, was, he was a light, light boy. He probably did his best lifting at probably 220, maybe even 198. Mm -hmm. um, but that meant something. Like that was a, that was a big deal. It was it was made a big deal at the meet, and that that meant something to me. Yeah. And I think you know, with an organization with history, there is more gravitas to the to the record book Agreed. versus an, an organization that's just been started. And sure, you're breaking quote world records mm -hmm. or world records. But when you break them in the APF and WPC, there's there's something to that. And I I appreciate, hence why we're doing this podcast, mm -hmm. I appreciate history and something that has a legacy. Agreed. Uh, number two is the the consistency of the rule book and the rules. And not just that they're they have been enforced consistently, but that the rule book in the APF and WPC has remained relatively the same for 30 plus years. And it's not a long rule book. It's mm -hmm. not something super complicated. Just about anybody can read it and understand it. And we don't have an approved list for equipment. We just have guidelines. Right. You know, it has to meet these standards. You could make it, you mean, you could get a sewing machine and make your own bench shirt if you'd like. Sure. Um, you could, you know, you, you could email the guy from Pakistan that emails me every month and, <laughs> and you know, white label your own knee wraps and use those in the meat if you want. Sure. Um, you know, the point of the approved list I would get if we're talking about a professional organization and by professional, I mean like where you actually get paid to compete, not, right. not a couple thousand dollars. Um, or if it's an Olympic sport where again, that's more or less becomes your job for a short period of time. Sure. Yeah. It makes sense with that type of exposure that the organization is getting paid for the exposure that that company is getting. But when you're talking about lifters at a local meet that's in a high school gymnasium, 
you know, do we need approved equipment for that? No, that doesn't no. make sense. Um, and I don't think it makes sense to apply standards from the Olympics down to, you know, the, the weekend warrior that wants to compete in a powerlifting meet. I mean, they don't, they, they don't definitely don't do that in like, you know, your church basketball league. It's not going to be called the same way the NBA is. Are there, are the rules very similar? Of course, but it's not going to be the exact sure, same. But we used to play three quarters court, four on four in church basketball. Is that yeah. okay? I mean, maybe. Did you guys use a Wilson or a Spalding? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, and did, what, did it have the right shape? Was it was it weighted properly? Was it? Yeah. If you play like you know, just like a pickup uh, baseball game, do you have to have the mud from the Mississippi River, you know, worked <laughs> into the ball to make sure it's the exact right kind of baseball? Oh my God. Um, you know, and it's it's something where I I feel the enforcement of the rules has been fairly consistent in my twenty plus years mm -hmm. in the APF. Um, I actually have judged. In the USAPL, believe it or not. Um, in fact, <gasps> I volunteered, and I was not paid, and that's okay. I'm not complaining. Well, you volunteered because so I yeah. did. I did volunteer, um, and I liked actually working some of Dennis Brady's meets. I've talked about it. Um, it was a good experience for me, actually, and helped me later. Uh, but I thought the judging there on the bench and deadlift was basically the same as what I saw in the APF. The difference was on squat depth, mm -hmm. and I felt that the APF sometimes would tend towards you know, approving squats that were borderline mm -hmm. versus if it was borderline in the USAPL, it was definitely red lighted. Right. And there was used the expectation that you should be able to, you should be able to see as a judge sitting upright in your chair, that the lifter has achieved depth without moving in your chair, without trying to get eye level with the lifter. They just want to be sitting upright from a long ways away from the platform and see that depth has been achieved quote unquote, convincingly deep. Right. Um, I do like the fact that the APF and WPC is seen as an organization that would red light a lifter for the execution of the lift. So you would get a red light if you didn't perform a squat that was to depth generally. Mm -hmm. But if there's something like, say, your equipment isn't put on quite correctly, like a thumb loop right. on your wrist strap or, you know, even a belt that's illegal. We lifter, would, lifter. We, or singlet legs that are too long. We mm -hmm. wouldn't just red light you. Um, we would say, hey, you know, that that's illegal. Um, you need to correct that right. prior to your next lift. If it's not an intentional cheat, if it's not something that is intended to aid the lift, like a lifter wearing two pairs of knee wraps. Right, or wearing, you know, knee wraps under your knee sleeves. Or a lifter wearing two pairs of briefs, as someone in Illinois did a number of years ago, that I caught him. Um, you know, those types of things aside, generally, you know, if you get a red light, it is going to be because you didn't perform the lift per the standards of the rule book. Right. And I like the fact that we have a consistent rule book and have consistency generally in our judging. I would agree. Um, third, I like the fact that the APF and WPC is a lifters organization. From the start, Ernie Franz did design the APF and WPC to be a lifters organization. You know, we talked about that in our Palooza throwback. Mm -hmm. He didn't do things like have an approved list. He didn't do things like have a separate layer of judging and a jury <laughs> to, you know, overly judge lifts. It's, you know, the, the focus should not be on the officials. The focus should be on the lifters. Yeah. Um, most of our officials and meet directors currently are either active or retired lifters. Amy Jackson would be one of the rare exceptions, and I think she does an excellent job despite 
having not been a lifter, but she had been around lifting at Franz Gym for many, many, many years. Um, she's someone I would definitely like us to interview if she's willing. Yeah. Um, she could talk about her just <clears throat> as being an administrator of the APF in addition to her being a part of Franz Gym for many years. Right. Um, I think our rules and our equipment in the APF, they're not designed to put unnecessary extra stress on the lifters. You know, we mentioned that we just have guidelines for equipment. Right. You just have to meet the standards. Oh, you have standards? Oh, <laughs> weird. Additionally, we've adopted new equipment and new technology that benefits the lifters, mm -hmm. not benefits the organization, the meat director. No, that shit's expensive. Things like monoliths. Things like specialty can, bars. Can you give, just for context, a range of what a monolift costs? Yeah, a monolift generally shipped is going to cost $3,500, maybe more now. So and I've actually heard, I watched, I watched a video that said the price of steel is probable to raise 40 to 50% in the next year due to God. many issues in that it's very plausible due to everything that's gone on with COVID. 5Gs. And the... The increased demand on home gym equipment, mm -hmm. that the two of those things together, home gym equipment is going to skyrocket in, in price. So if you'd like to buy some home gym equipment, you better do it soon. So so that, that's just the mono. Now the specialty bars, what do those cost? Um, you can't even buy the ones that we have right now, actually. The Bulldog bars, because they were sold through Westside, mm -hmm. you might still be able to get them through Texas Power Bars because they're they were the manufacturer. But because Westside has sold the rights to their bars, to uh, the equipment in general, to Rogue, and Rogue does not make the specialty 30-kilo squat bar, 25-kilo bench bar. Right. I'm not sure they're available. Um, but those were around 750 for the squat bar, 700 for the bench bar. Um, you know, deadlift bar is probably in the 400-ish range. And that's just to get one. Right. Now, imagine now you need, even for a one-platform, you usually need three monoliths, mm -hmm. three squat bars, three bench bars, three deadlift bars. Oh, minimum. you need plates, too. And you need kilo plates. And you need, you know, if you want... A good bench, that's another $3,000. And, and the, re the reason I say all that is because th this is, that's not to be taken lightly, you know, when you look at the, the equipment that it, it goes into putting on a good meat experience. Well, and I, I can appreciate the simplicity of the combo rack style mm -hmm. where it's one $3,000 piece of equipment that can be used for both squat and bench. Sure. And I've, I've heard D Steve Dennison of the USPA specifically say he'll never use a monolift at his meets specifically because of the cost and because of the difficulty in transporting them. And that's his prerogative. It's his business. It's his meats. He can do what he wants. And I, and I can see merit to that because, trust me, I've moved plenty of monos in my time, as have you, and it is yeah. a pain in the dick. It is not easy to move monoliths, and despite that, that is the standard that the APF has set for meats. And it's not to the, the benefit of the meat director or the officials because I can tell you, you moved monoliths when we did it whole in whole. Yep. When we take them apart and put them back together, add about triple of that time. Um, and sometimes we would have to take apart and put together three to four monoliths for a two-platform meet. Oh, gosh. So, but that should demonstrate that the APF does that because it benefits the lifters. And that's something that, you know, lifters, lifters that lift in the APF want. A, they come a lot of times because of the monolift. Right. Yep. Uh, we do solicit direct feedback from the lifters you know we do have an executive committee mm -hmm. um it's just an advisory board however and there's not some kind of huge bureaucracy that you need to go through you don't need to go to meetings and and not to say that those are bad um but there's not a lot of red tape 
if you want something, at least feedback heard about something, it's not hard to find somebody on the executive ward myself. It's not hard to contact the office. We have an administrator, which, you know, she does work out of her home office, but you could call her during business hours, Monday through Friday, and actually talk to her and ask and get a question answered. Right. You know, you may not get the answer you want, but, but, get it answered. but it's not hard to get feedback and to get answers to questions. Right. Because we're not at a gigantic organization with a lot of a huge bureaucracy and tons of red tape. Exactly. Um, we do offer, to, number four, we do offer options for competing. You know, in the 25 plus years uh, the APF has had, the AAPF, there has been both open ed drug tested divisions. Mm-hmm. And that's so that those that want to lift drug tested could have a similar platform. They can have that lifter friendly environment. They can have the specialty bars, the monoliths, the specialty benches. When the need arose and the market dictated, we did add a raw and then later classic raw divisions. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, <laughs> Eric, Eric Stone, if he was ruler of the APF, which I'm not, would rather see some consolidation, maybe just like one raw category. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I do believe in that we should be lifter-driven, market-driven. Mm-hmm. And right now that's that's kind of what the market dictates. Um, you can find, you know, great local meets all around the country. I would certainly like to see that improved upon. But yep. you can find, you know, quality local meets in many different areas of the country. But we also have opportunities if you'd like to compete in bigger national meets and even world meets through the IPF or through the not through the IPF, through the WPC. <laughs> right. Um, and I, I, I have IPF because I do believe the WPC is a true international organization with it's you know 40 plus countries, 40 plus countries. And is a true non-tested or alternative type organization mm-hmm. to the IPF. Right. And I appreciate those different options for competing now. I, I do take this from two different perspectives. And I like this. This is important, I think. Um, the first is just Eric Stone, the lifter. Um, I do prefer lift fully equipped, mm-hmm. you know, and multiply. That's what I've always done. I've talked about when I started competing, there wasn't a raw division. So I went to Franz gym and I picked up a double ply poly suit and wore it. Right. Um, I prefer, I've done both, and I prefer to lift with a monolift, and I prefer to lift with specialty bars. I mean, right. shoot, I've bought probably four or five monoliths in my life and sold two of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I prefer to lift with a monolift. I think one day in the gym, you know, uh, I was taking either a quarter or a plate, and one of the high schoolers said, oh, do you want me to run the rack for you? You're going to walk it out. I said, walk it out? <laughs> I said, I paid $3,500 for this monolift. I'm going to stand here, and you're going to run the rack for me. Exactly. Um, I do like the option that we have the drug tested division, the AAPF, which I have lifted in, you know, not exclusively, but often. Mm-hmm. But I do like the fact that maybe, oh, so when you cycle on, cycle off. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I do like the fact that if there is a time later in my life that I maybe either A, want to partake in PEDs mm-hmm. or B, just want to be on TRT as an older male. I can lift in the same organization, not have to worry about, you know, skirting the rules or Mm -hmm. cycling off. I can just lift in the APF and not have to change much. And I like the fact that, um, you know, that's the option for lifters and we can be honest about it. Um, The people do make organizations, you know, as as a gym owner, 
Um, I do think all the stuff that we have in the gym is important. The equipment's important. The size of our space is important. The turf and the size matters. Yeah, all the all the little different things we have here, I think, make a difference. But at the end of the day, if if the members didn't like me or they didn't like Howard or they didn't like the people that came to this gym, it wouldn't matter. You could have the best equipment in the world. If people don't like the people, then they're not going to come to a facility. And I, in sales, I'm sure you've heard often the same when you've gone to mm-hmm. you know, like sales seminars. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily sell yourself, but use yourself to sell the product or service. And if the person you are selling likes you, they're certainly more likely to buy your product or your service. And that's why salesmen are probably so important. I've always been told all things being equal, people do business with friends. Yeah. All things being unequal, people still fucking do business with friends. Agree. And because of that, semi-related is that I think the people of the APF and WPC make this organization. Agreed. The APF is a reflection of Ernie Franz's philosophy and Ernie Franz's personality Mm -hmm. and the way that he ran meets and conducted his business for many years. The APF is like a family, and I've been with it for 20 years but even when you and I, Mr. Bain, mm-hmm. have traveled across the pond, yeah, and we met Emma and Kali at 2017 NWPC Worlds, yes, I believe Emma had come over for the WPC Can-Am a couple years prior to that and met Howard. And so he knew her, but I'd never met her. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like the same type of philosophy, the same type of lifter-friendly uh, atmosphere, it was there were some idiosyncrasies. It sure. was different, but it was that it felt this. It felt like the same energy when we went to Great Britain, as it was when we went to meets here. No, agreed. It was uh, it was a cool experience, and knowing that you know we all kind of prescribe subscribe to the same philosophy of of life lifting in the pursuit of bigness. It was really really cool. And I, I found that when I've gone to other APF meets around the country, generally, and if I haven't those meat directors haven't stuck around very long in the APF. Correct. Uh, you know, if I, if I lift and I set records in the APF WPC, I feel like those records actually mean something, and it's not just a piece of paper or a PDF because I broke a record that was unclaimed. And there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with claiming those records. Right. Somebody has to set the baseline, um, but it does mean something. If I break a AW, even an AWPC you know, equipped record that's been around for 20 plus years. That, that means something. If I, when I broke, and again, it doesn't mean that I'm the strongest person in the world, but last year after trying it, I believe three or four times mm-hmm. when I finally broke the AWPC Submaster world record bench mm-hmm. of 475, like it, it did mean something. It, it was not just me just benching whatever. Yeah. It's something that i tried to break multiple times and i believe it was a russian lifter who held it prior to me right um and so there's something to that um i do know that when i go lift generally at an apf meet that i will be judged fairly not maliciously by the judges trying to prove something Mm -hmm. but hey i mean I bombed out of a squat only meet we had at the old 2xl and that was my brother ken (laughs) who gave me a red light on depth on actually I believe, at least my first two, I believe I just missed my third when I tried to take it balls deep. Yeah. But, hey, I knew that I wasn't even going to get a gift from my own brother. And I believe that's the case 
you know, in the APF in general. Now, I'm sure my brother wanted to give me a white if he thought I was in. Sure. Um, I have lifted in other organizations. It's not the same. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same atmosphere. It's not the same feel. And it, it, a feel is hard to describe. It's, but, a vib- it's a vibration. But there's something about when I have gone to APA meets or, you know, I've judged USAPL meets. They were, they were good meets. In fact, you know, I, I thought at that time the USAPL kind of got a negative uh, from APF lifters, got a negative connotation. I thought, you know, the, the USAPL meets I went to that Dennis Brady met, ran were, were very good meets. They were excellent meets. I thought he gave out really cool awards. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, he ran them very efficiently. And what I'll talk about next is, you know, from a meet director's perspective, how that kind of influenced me. But it, it, it's not the same when I have gone away from the APF, and that's why I've stuck with it as a lifter. Yeah, I, I would say this from a spectator's perspective, having been to other federations, I, I very much felt like an outsider. Okay. It, 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 I don't know, to, it, to your point, weird to describe a feeling, but that's that's what I felt. From a meet director's perspective, um, the first is just from a liability standpoint. For, for about the last 15 years, the APF has provided liability insurance that helps with the risk mitigation Mm -hmm. as a meet director. In fact, uh, although we probably won't run meets in a high school anytime soon, (laughs) if we wanted to, we would not be able to without that insurance. You can't even get in the door Mm -hmm. without a million dollar liability insurance. Right. And we have used that twice, myself once, another meet director once in Illinois, for equipment damage Mm -hmm. or uh, facility damage. Um, Unfortunately, one of my high school boys uh, dropped something on, and we're not even sure what, mm-hmm. but there was damage to the, the wooden floor at the high school we ran, I believe it was a summer bash, but the insurance covered it. It was no problem. Um, and it's not overly expensive either. It's basically the, the, the meat sanction fee increased $50 at that point. Wow. And that covered, you know, a, a pretty solid insurance policy. Right. Um, you know, Sanctioning the meat APF provides it with a solid rule book and a structure to follow. You mm-hmm. kind of know what you're going to get. It's not exactly the same at every APF meet, but you kind of know what you're going to get usually in an APF meet. It's a brand that people understand in the marketplace. Right. I know I've harped on records a couple of different times now, but as a meat director, the records of the APF and WPC do mean something to the lifters. And on the same token, there are lots of different opportunities given raw classic raw mm-hmm. state national and world records for lifters to set right and it's also nice as a lifter and as a meat director it's kind of cool that we still do send out paper american and world record certificates mm-hmm. in the mail at no additional cost by the way you know that's just something that's covered under your membership fee um and i do like the fact that the apf has not raised their membership cost and as for as long as i've been around and it's good for one year as opposed yes. to other organizations where it's good through only the calendar year. So you could buy a membership on December 30th, and it literally expires two days after you're, that. You're fucked. And it's not prorated, by the way. <laughs> no, it is not. Um, the options of the organization can appeal to a wide variety of lifters. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got raw now. We've got equipped. We've got tested. We've got non-tested. So you've, you've almost got a little bit of something for everyone. You can serve a big market. And again, I, I do perhaps have the thought that it might be optimal at some point to maybe try to whittle that down because sometimes lifters don't uh, take lifters out of it in the marketplace. Sometimes consumers 
don't always know what they want until they have it. Right. And sometimes you have to give people what they need as much as what they want. And I think if you ask people, of course they want to have, you know, people might want a raw with sleeves and a raw without sleeves and a raw with wraps division. But, I, you know, I just don't think that makes sense. No, it's, it's It doesn't make logistical much. sense. And I think perhaps our setup right now is, is trending in that situation. Mm-hmm. But I do like the fact that there are, you, you, you can attract, in the APF, you can attract, you know, big-time equipped lifters like the ones that want to qualify or even lift in the WPO right. all the way down to the local raw lifter who's doing their first meet. Yes. Um, and there is, speaking of that, there is the opportunity for lifters to qualify and lift at high, actual higher-level meets that not, you know, the world meet that's the same lifters and in the same... In the same building. In the same building. State and national meet. Right. Um you know, you've got APF and APF Nationals, which rotate around. You've got WPC and AWPC Worlds that rotate between the U.S. and Europe. Um, and now you've got the WPO again for the equipped yep, lifters. Exactly. You know, I have we have talked about this, Mr. Bain, but I do think that now you've got that higher-level meet with the WPO for equipped lifters to qualify for. Mm-hmm. I do think we might be missing a similar type of, you know, meet for the raw, classic raw lifters. Sure. You know, because I think one of the issues with why the APF was, especially from an equipped division standpoint for many years, was kind of down, was that what's next? Like, sure, I can lift at National Worlds, but, like, there wasn't that exclusivity that drove membership and lifters to come to the APF like in the mid-2000s right. when it was the breeding ground for the WPO. And you had APF seniors in 06 that had... 30 or 40 lifters deep in the open class, multiply equipped only. It's crazy. Um, yet you know, literally two full flights for the same weight class, and that wow. was multiply open. Did they do a prime transition? <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that on next week's hot topic. I've got some thoughts on that. All righty. Um, you know, but I do think we, we, as an organization, when I say we, I mean the APF, we might be missing a similar type of next level for the top level talent for i would say to aim towards the classic raw lifters is who we maybe could Mm -hmm. find something for you know the top level classic raw lifters so you're basically maxing out classic raw by having three meter knee wraps by having a monolift by having the 24-hour wins you could provide that environment for the for the the topping out of weights in that category sure Um, and something that we could think about then and then i've thought about and if i had an extra you know few hundred thousand dollars sitting around maybe i'd throw it towards the meat of course i don't nah, we'll work on that um you know my opinion and my personal opinion and, and lifters in general but as a meat director my opinion matters to the organization mm-hmm. and that and i i'm on the executive board so i i do get an actual say and vote on things but, but even before that even before that i did propose and it was successful the elimination of the morning of wan ironically years prior to that Amy Jackson and Maris Sternberg had proposed the same thing, and I was actually at the Worlds in, oh, oh, I want to say it was 07 or 08 in Florida where that was discussed, and it was, it was in, the, in the same conversation, it was, it was voted down. Mm-hmm. In the same conversation, the other country heads were complaining that uh, we had to change the flights, and myself... And my wife, Jackie, were there helping run the meet. I was running weigh-ins and helping at the table. Jackie was announcing. Mm -hmm. And they were complaining how we had to change the flights the morning of the meet. But that's because an entire team from, I want to say Cameroon or some 
African country didn't show up, and we had like... Imagine that. And we had 15 or 20 less lifters, and so we had to completely reshuffle the flights. And so in the same token, they're complaining about how we didn't have the flights ready, but then saying, oh, no, no, we can't get rid of the morning of WAN. Mm -hmm. And eventually, even the European countries (laughs) saw the light there. Um, But, you know, just because I propose something, it's not rubber stamped. Right. I did propose years ago to get rid of the women's 97-pound class and the men's 114 and 123 pound class and add the women's 220 class to basically even out the number of weight classes between men and women. Right. Um, I, I think it's actually probably time again to repropose adding the women's 220 class. We're actually talking about that in the gym tonight because, you know, a 210, 215 pound woman, mm-hmm. you know, is basically comparable to a 300 pound man because you've got the three weight pound class. And male, and then super heavyweight. But women, you go from 198 to super heavyweight. To super heavyweight, and you know a 200-pound woman has to compete against a 350-pound woman. I don't think that's necessarily fair. Yeah, I think and, and you have a lot more female competitors now. You do, and and I'll be honest, a lot of the women that are you know be, becoming very successful are the super heavyweights, and I think there needs to be some type of I don't want to say division, but just the ability to give them. Uh, more access, and I'll talk about that in some of my reasons why I like the APF, but I think it's a good topic to re, to re-bring up. I proposed it before, and it was a knockdown. Well, but I could propose it again. Um, I notice do, me, notice me, not now. Right. I do like the fact that as a meat director, there's a solid structure to mm-hmm. the APF, but I do have the flexibility to kind of do my own thing. I mean, we have created whole new meats, like our beginner's intro meat, like the mm-hmm. one we ran this past weekend. Yep. And essentially, it... If you break it down, it's basically a sanctioned meet with an extended rules meeting. Yes. And that's that all. It, not everybody listens to. <laughs> well, they listen to, but it doesn't always go through yeah, their head. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't stay. But, you know, meets like that, that maybe in other organizations say, oh, I don't, I don't know if you can do that, Eric. I don't know if you can do a whole seminar along with a meet. And it would have to go to committee, and then they'd have to discuss it, and then mm-hmm. say, well, what are you actually going to talk about in there? And in this case, I just did it. Uh, no, I got approval, I, or I asked, is this something that could be done? And sure, the office said they were fine with it. And, you know, myself and my client, Jill, created a PowerPoint. Um, it started as a seminar and evolved into a sanctioned event. Right. And that's kind of when those events have just taken off. And actually something I would like, if there's any APF meet directors out there, I'd like to bring to other states, either consulting with them and, you know, helping them with the PowerPoint, or, you know, if you're interested in Eric Stone coming out and, one time teaching the actual seminar portion of it, it's been something that's been very successful in Chicago. And I don't think that's... I highly recommend. And something that, you know, those meets selling out months in advance. And it's, yeah. a, it's a concept that is selling to lifters. And I think is, is a benefit to lifters. I think it plays into, you know, the, the concept. Because how, how often do we hear this, Eric, where someone says, oh, I want to do a meet, but I want to be sure I'm strong enough. Well, or yeah, they don't know where to start. And right. that's, that's where that meet was designed. And there used to be novice meets. Right. And I don't think organizations really do that that much anymore. And it's, it's, it's not quite just like a novice meet because a novice meet was more just for low-level competition. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's more, hey, let's teach you in addition to, you know, being for novice lifters. Here, here's some things to do. Here's some things not to do. Right. Um, we can run unique meets like the women's only meet mm-hmm. or raw only meets or equipped only meets. I mean, our equipped only state meet is probably going to be in, say, the modern era because all the meets were equipped only back in the day. Right. But in the modern era of raw lifting, 
this will be our biggest equipped only meet. We're already at 30 lifters. That's awesome. We've we've capped it at 50. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're over we're over 30 at this point. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but you know, the last couple of years, the Midwest Equipped Open has only had about you know 15 to 25 lifters. Yeah. So we're already bigger than that, and that meets you know a month and a half away. Right. Um, I could easily switch running my meets to ABC XYZ Federation with minimal changes. Um, I could start my own organization. Yeah. You know, in, in the uh, episode with Jackie, we talked about the story of the EPF or <laughs> Eric's Powerlifting Federation, easily changed to Ernie's Powerlifting Federation. It's possible that even if I started my organization, that I could draw a few other meat directors from around the country. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, you are um, an asshole. What you do around a good meat? Uh, but what I, I would say, what would be the point? Why? Why would I do that? That is and, a great question. And it wouldn't really mean anything. And, mm-hmm. and just like Mike Womack just made his own USA Bench Press Association. Maybe he runs great meets. Maybe that's a totally credible organization most of the time. But but who recognizes it? What what does it mean to have that brand on your meets? I mean, there's a lot of uh, you go back to our alphabet soup episode. There's a lot of offshoots of the APF. Oh yeah. Where because it's that type of independent organization, people often get mad about something in particular and then go form their organization because there is low barriers to entry of starting an organization and sanctioning meets, quote-unquote yeah. sanctioning meets. But for me, it doesn't really mean that much to sanction at some other organization. It, wouldn't, it would just be the Eric Stone meet. It wouldn't be an Eric Stone APF meet. The Lombard meet. Yeah, it would just be the we could call the Lombard Powerlifting Federation. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yep. The the LPF. <laughs> oh my god. But I would rather our meets be part of something bigger than myself and bigger than being in Lombard. I would rather it be part of a national and world organization and not just all the meets be here at two XL. I mean, I like the fact that we can run a lot of meets here at the gym. Yeah. But there's also a national meet in Tennessee. There's a national meet in Florida. There's a world meet. Um, that's going to be in Portugal this year for the WPC. Portugal. Um, and I, I'll give credit, and I have actually given credit other times. We, we criticized them as well, but I'll give credit to the USAP, USAPL and IPF, and even the USPA. Yeah. I think sanctioning your meet right now under those banners does mean something. There is a brand for USAPL, good or bad. There's a brand with USPA. There's a brand with IPF. And there's credibility in doing your lifts in that organization and agreed i I do believe that we have there's been a time when the apf was down but i think in the last 10 years especially we've you know we've taken the spirit of what ernie franz brought and started with the apf and you know i've talked about that i judged usapl meets and i went to some of dennis brady's usapl meets my goal as a meet director was to take the efficiency and the organization of what i saw at dennis brady's meets and thread the needle with the lifter friendliness of what I had at Ernie Franz's meets. I right. loved Ernie's meets. They were great. I mean, my first meet was the 2000 APF Illinois State meet, but Ernie's meets never started on time. <laughs> they were always 15 to 20 minutes late. Which, Florida time. Which, yeah, it literally was Florida time. That kind of fits Ernie's personality. I would prefer my meets to start relatively on time. No, that doesn't yeah. mean that, like, hey, if the first lifter is going to wrap their knees, well, I'll play the national anthem, and then I will say, you wrap your knees, and when you're ready, we'll start the clock on you. And that's mm. the type of flexibility that I think fits with what we want to do in the APF. We'll play the national anthem right at 9-0-0. Oh, yeah. And if we play the Jimi Hendrix version, it's going to be like 18 minutes long. Stop whining. 
Um, <laughs> the normal version will be at two minutes long, and then we'll start the meet after that. It's not, hey, at 9.00, we're going to start the clock, mm-hmm. and you better be ready to go. Um, and that's what I, I, I believe we've tried to do. We, 2XL, we, Eric and Jackie Stone, we, Howard and Eric at 2XL, have tried to carry on the legacy that Ernie Franz started, you know, now, gosh, Almost 40 almost, years ago. Yeah, almost 40 years ago. 1982, trust me, almost 40 years ago. Yeah, no, I mean, well, he started the AMPF in 1982, and we're mm. we're rounding up to 40 years. Yep. Mr. I'm, Bain. I'm not, man. Yeah. Mr. Bain, how about you as a uh, as a lifter and now as a, you know, helper at APF meets? Yeah, yeah. So uh, first things first, what excited me about the APF was, was simply access. Being in Illinois, you know, it was very easy to get access to meets. Uh, especially in the Chicagoland area. You know, it was my first meet in Sycamore, call it an hour away, right, from, from where I live. Um, the, the gyms that I was uh, training at and the people that were kind of pushing me to, to you know, lift, uh, they were affiliated with the APF. Like, it's a good organization. It, the fun, there's fun meets. You know, your name was specifically brought up by my original coach. Say, so, you know, Eric runs a good meet, uh, and these guys are all affiliated. But he's an asshole. He is an asshole. Um, so it, I was pushed towards the APF. And what I saw as I started to kind of dig in and as I started to learn more about powerlifting was, you know, I could stay in the Fed that I, that I wanted. You know, you mentioned there's all these different options. You want to go raw, equip, test. And so regardless of how I wanted to lift, as long as I want to do squat, bench, deadlift, I can do it in the APF. And shit, if I just want to bench or just deadlift, I can still do it in the APF. Which I've done for the last couple of years. <laughs> exactly. And superior handoffs. <clears throat> So, so I like that a lot. Uh, honestly, like for, for me, the experience as a lifter, my first experience in APF meet was just, it was it was really fun. You know, and I hear this from many, many feds. And, and I think we should we just pause on that fun. Yeah. Like, you and I aren't doing this for a living. No. And sure, if you're competing at the professional level, I'm not sure the WPO lifters are lifting exclusively for fun. And I get it. If you're going to the IPF Worlds, that's not exclusive or for fun. But for 95% of us, this is a hobby. Granted, it's a hobby that's really important to us and that mm-hmm. we want to work really hard at. But that's that's what I get from the APF. The meets are fun. Right. They're, they're not overly, you know, stringent just to be overly stringent. Right. You, you, you're an asshole who runs a meet. You don't have asshole staff. <laughs> yeah, I try to put nice staff in place. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why he keep me up there, but whatever. Um, oh, that asshole with those uh, elbow sleeves. Yeah, he's an idiot. He's not an asshole. He's an idiot. Um, but it was just fun. And, you know, again, I, I hear this from many other people. Like, they go to a Fed and they have a good time with their first powers to me. It's like, oh, my God, I'm my own lifter now. It's real so dope. I've made a ton of friends. And the environment was just very welcoming. And it was one where people didn't have to be, and they just reached out and they wanted the help with basically no prompting. Uh, as I continued to travel to meets outside of Illinois, I continued to have great experiences. Uh, specifically, talking with Linda Higgins, I called her up. She answered right away. It was, you know, not like you know, Lois Simmons at Westside when you know Michael Fahey called, but she was super cool. She I just wanted to know. No, I'm not doing your documentary. <laughs> uh, you know, she was very helpful with you know filling out the forms. And she even made suggestions like, hey, you know, you come all this way. Idaho Falls is beautiful, but really suggest at least do deadlift or bench only as well, because if for whatever reason you don't adjust to the altitude here and you, you bomb on squat. We want yourself a good time and still lose place while you're here. Or at least have the opportunity to. And then we talked about it with, you know, going to England. You know, we felt like very much we, we were just we were just visiting family abroad. That's all we were doing. And 
And that's what was just so cool is that experience of just being, you know, welcomed in and then, you know, continuing to meet up with these people again. You think about to like 2019 Worlds down in Orlando. We're sitting there and it's Emma Colley. It's, you know, you, Howard. It's, uh, you know, my wife, Nicole. We've got uh, Wayne Pullum, Jennifer Gimmel. And just, it's just one big powerlifting family. And it's just, it's awesome. And it's amazing. Uh, you know, most recently with the affiliation with the WPO, you know, I, is the WPO a perfect you know, organization or meet. No, but I have a lot of fun around the WPO. I've met a lot of great people through it. And I love that the APF is affiliated with it and that it's, you know, kind of bringing back the roots of, as you talked about, that used to be the breeding ground for the WPO. And it's and now it is again. My experience is that it's a, it's a lifters org. Uh, you know, you, we've gone on a lot of reasons why it is. Uh, there's a lot of areas to grow. And I think it's, it's really interesting to me the model that uh, Jason and his team down in Kentucky and Tennessee are taking where they are they are asking for experienced judges and spotters to come in and teach and train their people on how to, you know, provide a good meat environment. They've seen that through the APF and say, hey, we want to duplicate this. Can you guys come down and teach us? Uh, and so that's, you know, Eric mentioned earlier about uh, doing the beginner's meets. Highly recommend state chairs if you're listening, you know, check these out because I think it's a really cool model to, to do and it, it provides a great experience for your teams for your lifters and uh, you know if you want me and Eric to come down we'll, we'll make it work um, <laughs> sorry just volunteer your time there Eric. To, to your point earlier though is what what I do what I say and what I leave to this organization matters it's one that I am willing and excited to bring my family into uh, you've done the same thing Eric you know your children are lifting at the um, the autism meet. My daughter has lifted in now, you know, state, national, and world meets. And it's one that we'll continue to participate in because it, it it's something bigger than us. It's not just the Eric Stone Federation. It's not just the Lombard Strength Federation. It's, it's Oh, I like that. Lombard Strength Federation. There yeah. you go. LSF. Then we, then we could, like, do whatever we want. We could add, like, an overhead press or something yeah, else. Yeah, we'll do grip, grip strength, you know, no, no big deal. Javi no would love that. No, no problem. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's something that matters. And then when you think about the legacy of Ernie Franz, you know, Knowing what he contributed to to many many people that have you know poured into my life, and now I get to be a part of that and contribute and do that into my own children and to other people. And what's one of the reasons why I love like these beginners meets is because we get to continue the Franz legacy. Yeah, no doubt. I mean that you said it there. It's something bigger than ourselves, and a lot of times some of these offshoot federations. And to be fair, when the APF started it was the Ernie Franz organization for many years, but it became bigger than that. And it was certainly his fingerprints were on it. I think mm -hmm. in general, organizations are a reflection of their leadership. And other organizations that have been around for a long time as well, they're basically just a one-man show. And if, if you pull that one person out of there, the organization would go away. I mean, SLP, we talked about, once Daryl Latch died, that organization was no more for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And when Ernie Franz even took a step away from the APF, it continued, it even, even thrived um, continuing on what he started. And that's right. the sign of an organization that's, that's healthy, that can, you can take a leader out of that, even in a, a super impactful, super important leader like Ernie Franz, and it can find a way to continue to grow and build upon mm -hmm. what he started. And that's what I'd like to believe that Jack and I, you know, going back to our, our roots of, hey, why don't you try running a meet in 04, the original <laughs> Summer Bash, that we've tried to build upon is that Franz legacy and being a part of a, a bigger-than-ourselves organization. And that's why, you know, I've continued to be a part of the APF and why if some of you are listening to this and you've competed in the APF, you competed in other organizations, 
I do encourage you, you know, if you've not lifted an APF, give it a try. Mm -hmm. If you have, I can, I suggest maybe give it a try again. And why I think, you know, if you're a meat director, I think we're bringing on new meat directors quite frequently lately mm -hmm. and i think it's the it's a good organization to be a part of and i don't want to make this a whole sales job type uh podcast but you know i feel strongly about it and i get nothing from that yeah um it, unless you come to my meets here our meets here uh but i i just feel strongly enough about the organization that i you know want to continue to promote it agreed same so mr bain uh be sure if you enjoy this podcast, uh, to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, um, that helps the algorithms. Yes, and we, and we all are run by algorithms. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support it, please check out the direct link in our link tree to our merch store. I'm seeing more and more of our merch out there, and if you do get some merch in the mail, take a picture and post it on the social medias and, and tag, tag us. Tag us in it. And we want to keep powerlifting great, Mr. Bain. A fucking man. Next week and beyond, um, we've got some other interviews on the way. In fact, a very special follow-up interview that I think Mr. Bain will be very excited about. Maybe. Um, we are eventually going to do a, a geared uh, book review mm -hmm. on the Multiply Bible, or what? It, what is he calling it now? Gear. Just gear? Okay. Uh, the David Kirshen, you know, kind of collaborative gear book. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very long book. And I think there's like a, I don't know, 40 or 50 page last chapter on specifically Honorary Franz. It is 100 pages. Wow. So that's almost a book in and of itself on Ernie Franz. Er and Eric went, and I'm glad he did, he went off. Yeah, and, and honestly, we could probably do a review of the geared book in general and then separately do a review of what's almost a book inside of a book mm -hmm. of the Eric Marosher, you know, history of multiply powerlifting, history of Ernie Franz's influence on that. Yeah. Right, yeah, and gosh, ironic that he just completed that, and I, got, I think he just had talked to Ernie, you know, just a little bit about that before his passing, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that was uh, something that Marosher was able to do before Ernie passed. Same. Um, as something like those two are going to take some time, there might be an Ask Us Anything to fill in some of the gaps in there. Um, but we've got some other interviews to continue to build upon mm -hmm. talking about the Franz legacy. There's a lot of people that are here at the gym, um, a lot of people here in the, era, in the Chicago area and beyond that I would like to talk to, we would like to talk to about their experience, especially with Ernie Franz. Um, I just found out... Uh, this last weekend that uh, one of our members, Mike Goldman, apparently was the first lifter to wear a canvas suit in a meet. No kidding. And apparently he had it on, and of course it looks like a giant diaper. And <laughs> everyone was kind of making fun of him until he had his opening squat. And they're like, hmm. And then he had a second squat, he was even bigger. And everyone was like, hmm, where's that Franz gear table? I'd like to order a canvas squat suit. I, I too would like some. Put me in one of those diapers. So yes. that might be someone to talk about, about uh, yeah. kind of the, he was a Franz member. And it, it I was saying to some of the members Are, tonight. We could have an in-person interview possibly. Yeah. Oh my God. It was interesting because it, it makes sense. And Mike was a really good lifter. I'm not saying he wasn't, but he wasn't necessarily like, you know, the greatest lifter in the world, but mm -hmm. it makes sense that it would be kind of like those, those upper tier, maybe not the tippy top lifter that would be, Hey, just put this on, you know, yeah. one of a loyal fraud soldier that got to beta test one of the, 
one of the prototypes yeah, of gear. Um, you know, Ernie Franz, the first to, was on this Palooza throwback, first to have the denim bench shirt and the first to have the canvas squat suit and maybe one of the first people to wear it right here at 2XL. That's pretty dope. I so, like it. With that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and anger. <laughs>